Hello everyone, I'm Nate Truex and you're listening to the Crockcast Podcast. Hello everyone, welcome to the Crockcast Podcast. I'm your host Nate and today I'm joined by Lance Payton who's currently working with the Turtle Survival Project. Lance, welcome to the show. Hey Nate. It's uh, the, the Turtle Survival Alliance. Is, uh, the, it's a NGO that I'm working with currently. Uh, so, yeah. Nice yeah. to be here. Thank you for having me. And it's my pleasure. So, you want to get to start off with uh, how you first got into Herps and kind of your career path up to this point? Uh, sure. It, I mean, Herps have kind of been a, a big part of my life uh, ever since I was probably three, four years old growing up. Uh, Dad was always a big fan of box turtles, so we kept quite a few box turtles in our backyard growing up, rescued turtles on on the road all the time. It was kind of a big hobby of mine and his when I was uh, little, so that kind of got me started and uh, been keeping reptiles ever since then, pretty much. Uh, various stages of my life have been more involved with uh, turtles and then lizards and monitors and then back to turtles and tortoises and now i'm uh more on the research side of things went into kind of the professional research career path i guess you would say after graduate school and did my master's program at the university of georgia so uh yeah that's kind of a brief intro (laughs) Uh, did you work with uh, any type of herp during for your master's program? Yeah, I worked with uh, gopher tortoises down in southeast Georgia. Uh, I was a part of the uh, University of Georgia applied wildlife uh, lab, and we we worked with a lot of different species that were found on the coast through the the Georgia Sea Turtle Center. So. Yeah, that that's kind of where my focus was. Yeah. So far, it sounds like you've done uh, most of your work with uh, turtles and tortoises. Uh, you want to talk about that, that at all? Uh, sure, yeah. I mean, uh, gopher tortoises are kind of a iconic keystone species throughout the southeastern U.S. Um, my project specifically, I was uh, working with a, a mining company that does uh, – heavy mineral sand mining in Georgia. And part of that project involved uh, doing reintroduction uh, or relocation work rather for tortoises that would be on lands that were impacted by mining activities potentially. So my master's project came in involved in the, uh, in the stage of where we were moving tortoises from one of the mining sites to a protected uh, DNR on site that was about an hour away from the, the mine site. And then I used GPS loggers to monitor their movements, radio tracking them with uh, VHF transmitters, and uh, did a lot of temperature work trying to, to see how they were coping with being moved to a new location. Um, so that's that's what a lot of my, my work revolved around with gopher tortoises and uh, I got to do a lot of other other fun herp work working at the Georgia Sea Turtle Center as well. Uh, I like to say that my role when I was there for two years uh, as an AmeriCorps member before I even started my master's was 
doing all of the uh, non-sea turtle perp research on the coast. So I did a, did a lot of radio tracking with eastern diamondback rattlesnakes, fox turtles. We were head starting diamondback terrapins uh, and releasing re those out into the salt marsh. So I, I have a, a bit of uh, kind of a mixed bag of experience <laughs> down in Georgia. So. Yeah. So you currently work with the uh, Turtle Survival Alliance. Uh, do you want to go into detail about what that entails? Uh, yeah, so most of my work with the Turtle Survival Alliance right now is uh, kind of volunteer and contract-based work. Uh, I've done some projects with them helping out grad students with uh, GPS logger work, so creating these little devices that we could put on freshwater turtles in some of the Florida springs to see where they're going, where they're nesting, uh, and just learning more about the general spatial ecology movement patterns and stuff of some of those species down there. So I, I got involved with TSA uh, through that, and then uh, the opportunity came up to go to Madagascar, and I have since been been involved uh, with the the big reintroduction project that they have for uh, confiscated radiated tortoises in Madagascar. So that's that's my current main focus. <laughs> yeah, uh, I know you mentioned uh, when we were texting before this that you had to keep some parts secret for uh, security reasons. But I uh, want to go into more detail about your work with radio tortoises in Madagascar. Yeah, so uh, basically the, the biggest issues affecting radiated tortoises in the wild are uh, like habitat loss, obviously, but the, the black market trade is enormous for radiated tortoises. They have a uh, hefty price tag in overseas markets, especially in, in Southeast Asia. You see a lot of uh, ones that are that pop up in the in the trade in the U.S. are again quite valuable and highly coveted. Uh, however, they're regulated by CITES, so any inter international trade is pretty strictly regulated. So uh, currently, the TSA has got a number of facilities spread out throughout Madagascar that work on triaging tortoises that have been seized and uh, illegal wildlife trade operations, and they keep a lot of a uh, lot of the information around that pretty pretty close to the chest, just because it's uh, very much a safety concern for having the animal stolen, and then also a lot of my friends and uh, coworkers over there, it's it's a big thing for their safety as well to not <laughs> give away too much information about the localities and exactly where we work but we do have some some great communities that we're working with and uh they're really trying to build a foundation that will guide the future for over twenty thousand of these tortoises that are currently in captivity to be reintroduced so it's it's pretty exciting to be a part of it and uh quite honored <laughs> yeah so do you have any idea what the rough numbers of radio tortoises are in the wild at the moment and on how long is that? Uh, do you know, is there any indication of whether their populations are trending up or down or just holding steady at the moment? So I, there haven't been any uh, recent um, 
pop, like range-wide population monitoring done that I'm aware of. There's some line transect projects that can give regional estimates. Uh, the, the big issue with why radiated tortoises are considered critically endangered is the rate of decline that they've experienced. They were once one of the most abundant uh, tortoises in the world and had populations that were in the tens of millions in Madagascar. And now it's in into the uh, like tens of thousands that are believed to exist in their range currently. So just a massive uh, decrease in the total number of tortoises still in the wild in Madagascar is kind of the, the reason for that. Yeah. Uh, so when did this massive fall off happen to the population? Was that sometime in the past century or could it be tracing it further back? No, uh, it's, it's been within the last 30 to 40 years has been the, the majority of the population decline. So it's, uh, it's a very high priority for a number of turtle and tortoise conservation organizations. Uh, the AZA, so that's the Zoo and Aquarium organization uh, in the U.S. that kind of spearheads a lot of the work over there. They are highly involved with the project, provide a lot of funding and support, which is pretty amazing. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. So this, you know, obviously losing tens of millions of, of tortoises in the span of a few decades. What was the main cause of that? Was that been uh, habitat loss or was the majority of that been due to the black market? Why well, it's, I, I don't know that I would be comfortable saying exactly what caused it, but if you look at any aerial imagery from the country, there's uh, just tons and tons of agricultural clearing of land. Uh, so the the spiny forest in southern Madagascar is very important to radiated tortoises. And a lot of that gets cleared out every year for uh, more and more agricultural uses. The communities raise a lot of invasive cactus species, Opuntia cactus, and they uh, use the fruits for, for food. And then also the, the cactus pads, they're able to feed to a lot of their uh, cattle as a food source during really dry periods. And uh, in the last several years, they've had some of the worst droughts in history uh, going on over there. So there's, it's, it's a bit of this land conversion issue coupled with an explosive growth in the human population. So there's just way more people than there was even 20 years ago. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of things coming into play. Uh, certain regions of the country, the communities will actually uh, use the tortoises as a food source, which is, it's a very detrimental thing to be removing adult tortoises uh, from any, any area, especially uh, if you're trying to <laughs> have a future generation to replace those adults that are being eaten every single year. It just creates a, a downward trend for the population. It's not good. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned the Southern Spiny Forest. Is that where uh, radio tortoises, was that kind of their stronghold? Or, I mean, we always hear Madagascar is a very highly varied uh, island in terms of its uh, ecology and environments. Are radio tortoises more found in only one or a few uh, different environments, or are they pretty much found across the entire island? 
No, definitely not across the entire island. Uh, there's basically a, a mountain mountain chain that runs uh, kind of down the eastern central portion of the of Madagascar, and the east of that is much more, uh, I guess you could say, uh, like rainy. It gets a lot of pre- precipitation each year. Has a lot of the what you would consider more uh, like rainforest species, but then the the west and southwest in particular has a lot of uh, more arid habitats and that's kind of where you find this these spiny forest habitats so the radiated tortoises will use those and then they're they are also out in some other kind of adjacent types of habitats more more coastal areas uh yeah okay so you you just go over a, a few things about uh, radiated tortoise biology, like their lifespan, how long it just take them to get to uh, uh, reproductive size, that sort of stuff? Yeah, so uh, radiated tortoises, they uh, there's, not, there's not a whole lot known <laughs> from their ecology in the wild. They're, there's a lot of information that we're getting currently doing the research over there at the moment that I think is going to be very valuable to uh, researchers in the future that uh, are doing conservation work as well as some of their land management practices that are going to help protect future generations of the tortoises and uh, they're like like many tortoises very slow growing it takes many years to reach reproduction um, I, I would be surprised under their the conditions in the wild if they reach maturity before they're probably 15 years old uh just quite harsh conditions and the basically the rainy season is when they grow explosively for a couple months if they get good rains if the vegetation grows well if not they're they're just surviving basically they're kind of getting by and putting on a little bit of growth each year as they can so very slow growing (laughs) yeah Uh, so what's the majority of their diet consists of in the wild uh, a lot of different herbaceous vegetation is a, a key part of their their natural wild diet. But there, like I said before, there's there's so much cactus in Madagascar in that southern region that is invasive. Uh, they seem to do really well actually eating the cactus fruits as well as the the cactus pads. There's a a lot of um we call them octopus trees that have little uh shoots that are uh lemurs love to eat them and the tortoises also nibble on those grasses they they from my perspective they seem to be quite a a generalist of a, a tortoise species there's a lot of species that have a little more specific dietary requirements but i don't think radiated tortoises are that yeah and Madagascar doesn't really have any large native predators, so I imagine they, in a natural setting, they wouldn't have any natural predators, right? Uh, once they get to a certain size, they have very few natural predators. Uh, that when they're small, hatchlings, pretty much anything can eat them. Just like yeah. all our, our tortoises in the U.S. here go for a species, they're they're very uh, likely to be picked up by by crows and ravens. Uh, various meso predators will take them out so uh yeah once once they get 
about the size of a basketball, there's there's not a lot that uh, really will mess with them too much, other than people. So, yeah. So, is there any way uh, people at home could help uh, support uh, radiated tortoise conservation? Um, yeah, they, being a s- supporter of the Turtle Survival Alliance is a great way to start, as well as uh, many of the zoos throughout the country have projects that they donate conservation funds through. Um, uh, one of the big biggest programs is the AZA SAFE program, and each year they award uh, various uh research and conservation funds to projects that are working on specific species. So being a contributor to zoos through conservation donations and just visiting them is a great way to get involved. Uh, There's also a lot of volunteer opportunities with uh, many different NGOs throughout the country. And that's a really great way to get involved as well. If you have a a strong interest in specific work that a is going on for a species. Gotcha. Uh, I'm trying to think of other, any other questions about radio tortoises before I move on. Uh, anything else you want to say about them before we move on? Uh, I mean, they're, they're an awesome, awesome tortoise. I, um, can't dispute very, that. Very, very great. Grateful to get to work with those. Uh, there's a lot of different Madagascan tortoise species that are in kind of the same boat as having conservation issues uh that really need more attention and just i think radiated tortoises provide a good um kind of a template for how to go about conserving species before they get to the insanely low levels that some of the other malagasy tortoise species have already reached so i think that's that's good for people to keep in mind elsewhere in the world yeah yeah, it's kind of crazy how drastically their population has dropped when you think about it. Because I'm used to hearing about, as a guy who nerds up about crocodilians, I'm used to hearing stuff about, oh, their populations were just slashed in the early part of the 20th century. And the only reason they haven't recovered yet is it just takes so long to recover or there's not much funding or something like that. But right. this, is like, this is like the first herb I've heard of that I can think off the top of my head that has such, has such a drastic drop off in my lifetime. Yeah, it, it's it's impressive. Uh, scary, <laughs> definitely something to watch for with other species. I, I think uh, as time moves on, we're going to see more and more issues like this. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. well, while we're on the subject of uh, Malagasy tortoises, you want to talk about any of the other species at all? Uh, so far, I've only gotten to uh, see and find some of the the spider tortoises. Uh, that also co-occur in the same region. Uh, they're just awesome little tiny tortoise species that uh, have uh, this crazy ability to <laughs> kind of bury down in the leaf litter and just disappear for months on end and then only come come back to the surface when conditions are just so. So it's as somebody that studied a lot of turtles and tortoises in the U.S., it's it's pretty impressive to see some of the adaptations that uh, Malagasy tortoises have had to develop in such harsh conditions. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well,
Yeah, sorry about that. Uh, the place I was going to record at had to get changed at the last moment, so now I'm in my reptile shed, and it's a lot warmer than sweater than sweater <laughs> temperature. So, yeah, imagine. <laughs> yeah. So, have you managed to do any uh, herping on your own time in Madagascar? Uh, a little bit, not not a lot. Uh, for the most part, I, I've been over there four times now. Each each trip's about a month long. Uh, and we tend to go to the some of the same villages, same communities each trip. So it's it's really neat to see the forest in different times of the year. You see different species coming out, taking advantage of uh, whatever the current conditions are. Like this this last trip I was over there, we just had a, uh, a like a basically a tropical storm move through. Uh, dropped a ton of rain in a short period of time and the frogs just exploded like several different species that we had never seen on any of the other three trips came out just deafening choruses and these little ephemeral wetlands that that pop up so seeing that's pretty pretty awesome i've gotten to see uh a number of boas and so that's how was about to ask about this yeah <laughs> yeah it's it's exciting. I, Sanzinia is always one that gets my blood pumping when I'm over there. I try to find. <laughs> yeah. Uh, have you managed to find any of the, also any of the native geckos as well? I imagine probably did, but. Yeah, we see see quite a few of the geckos that that occur in the south. Uh, I've only done one one very short trip uh, east of the the capital city Antonariva. Uh, East of that is more rainforest type habitat. Uh, got to see some some very interesting herps there. I'm hoping on a future trip I'll I'll get to spend some more time kind of recreational herping and see seeing what all I can find in the north of the country as well. So. Yeah. So you mentioned you did work here in, in uh, the southern United States and in Madagascar. Have you done anything uh, in any other uh, countries? Uh, yeah, I've, I've actually uh, gone down to Costa Rica, helped out with the American Crocodile Project, where we were putting satellite tags out. Um, so that was a lot of fun. Back in 2017, I believe, we had a Disney Conservation Fund grant to put out some satellite tags. So I had, <laughs> had quite an experience going from catching American alligators to... Uh, American Crocs in Costa Rica is it's a whole different ball game. So yeah, getting getting drug upriver against the the uh, outgoing t uh, tide is pretty wild, but very large Crocs. So yeah. So uh, uh, what were some of your findings from that satellite survey? Uh, so that I don't want to speak too much to that because we got a a partner down there i'm not sure exactly where he's at with his his research but uh it, it was it was very uh i guess you could say exciting for us to go there and see some different habitats versus uh like working in the okefenokee swamp or on the coast of georgia uh, just very different habitats getting an appreciation for uh a, a very different crocodilian <laughs> and uh had a lot of fun with that so yeah yeah so and going out it, I, we caught a lot of uh i believe it was spectacle caimans in the uh some of the 
the rainforest areas around where we were working with the crocs too and seeing kind of how they partitioned off habitat differently <laughs> yeah was, yeah it was that was pretty cool to see as well yeah uh, you get a appreciation for a crocodilian using these tiny little puddles in the jungle versus big open wetlands or river systems or deltas so. and stuff like that yeah 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 i'm trying to remember what the thing is spectacle came is are it's just a species that seems primed to get just broken up and exploded into like several different species seems like oh, really? okay it, it yeah, seems I, like I, I imagine if you range all the way from costa rica to argentina so. oh yeah that's that sounds right for it <laughs> I yeah. wouldn't consider myself a crocodilian expert by any means, but I, I have been been fortunate to work on some projects and get to be involved as far as uh, being help in the field. So that's been yeah. really cool. Yeah. yeah. So what are some other places you've done uh, tortoise research and turtle research? Um, turtle and tortoise research. I, I did uh, a lot of spotted turtle work in North Carolina for Clemson University. They had a professor that was do, had a grad student doing work up there. Uh, so I get to spend a lot of time tromping through Pocasin swamps, looking for spotted turtles and doing other herp surveys a lot. That was a lot of fun. Um, I've done Eastern Indigo snake work down in Georgia or uh, in Florida, I mean, and a little bit in Georgia, not near, near as much there though. Uh, I've done like volunteer surveys with TSA, the, the North American Freshwater Turtle Research Group does spring sampling trips uh, where they go to Florida Springs, Texas Springs, and I think believe they have a couple other sites in the Northeast as well doing turtle sampling events. Uh, and those are always a lot of fun to get involved with. So, yeah, those are yeah. some of the highlights. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I definitely want to circle back to that uh, indigo snake research because that's just such an iconic uh, North American species. Yeah, yeah, they were they were actually, uh, I guess, probably the the first real tech like herp technician job that I took was with the Orian Society. They had a project down at the Archbold Biological Station in uh, Central Florida, South Central Florida, and. Uh, my 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 role in that project was to just follow these we had about 20 indigos with transmitters in them follow them all over the archbold station and there's like three or four counties that we had snakes in so i was just driving constantly from site to site hop out go walk four or five miles <laughs> find the snake uh try to get really interesting natural history observations and uh anytime we would like find new new indigos pretty regularly especially in the the cooler months down there the mating season starts so i'd find new snakes with my already telemetered snakes and then have to run them up to the university of florida at gainesville get transmitters implant surgeries done on them drive them back down release them and then just kind of adds to your <laughs> radio tracking workload for the the next several months so yeah and yeah. indigos they move around a lot don't they oh yeah yeah you will get a, a very different appreciation for indigos versus a lot of other snakes after radio tracking them uh, it's 
it's very impressive how far they can move and in a day like just i had big males that would make these uh like foraging movements of multiple kilometers in a day or two days and you'd see them out near uh, a lake shore just cruising around hunting and then the next day they'd be back in the some of the upland areas hanging out around gopher tortoise burrows uh doing kind of more typical indigo snake behaviors that you might be familiar with uh kind of how they act more frequently in georgia some of the higher sand hills habitat systems so yeah they're very awesome snakes loved working with those <laughs> yeah especially the fact that they don't even really constrict their prey they just grab it and thrash it around beat it up oh yeah yeah i actually had had uh one of our snakes that i was tracking i think her name was lucky and she uh she had caught a coach whip that was every bit of seven feet long and she was maybe five and a half feet long and she got the entire coach whip down and just had these these huge bulging lumps in in her body for like three weeks after she ate it it was incredible i was very impressed with that I'm impressed with the fact she managed to catch a coach whip. Well, they, the coach whips will use the, those tortoise burrows as well. So I, I have a feeling it made the mistake of coming into a burrow she was already in or she, she trailed down in there. It. Yeah, took took advantage of the, the burrow to be able to grab a hold of it and just beat it up, like you said. So, yes, yeah. that's, that's wild. So. Yeah, they really do earn their uh, genus name. So, yeah. <laughs> uh. So what are some other uh, interesting things you observed with indigos? Um, probably, I think it was like my, my first, maybe second week on the job, I was radio tracking one in this hammock. And uh, I, was, I was with uh, the, my supervisor that was train, training me on the job. And we, we had tracked this snake <clears throat> to the base of this big live oak tree. And there was like no burrows anywhere near it that the snake could be in. So we're going around and around this tree, take it, take the uh, unhooking the Yagi antenna and kind of touching it around with the cord, trying to figure out a pinpoint location for it. And at some point, it the uh, the cable just swung up, and when it got to the high point, it beeped really loud above us, and we both <laughs> we both looked up and about. 25 feet up in this live oak tree this indigo was just like looking over a limb down at us seeing what was going on and that was that was very unexpected uh and after that i think i only had two or two or three other encounters of thousands of times of radio tracking snakes where they were in trees and shrubs up off the ground and never again that high up in a tree so that kind of really stood out in my mind <laughs> yeah yeah, it sounds like I need to tag along with the Orient Society sometime just to get my life for Indigo. Yeah, yeah, there's there's some great great folks that work over there. Big fans of the Orient Society. Yeah. So you mentioned you did work with, uh, you said, spotted turtles, right? Yep, yep. All right, want to talk about that a little bit more? Uh, yeah, can a little bit. Uh, I, was, I was working with, the, like I said, a graduate student. He was... He was working on his master's project at the time, and uh, that was on some 
basically uh, pine pine tree plantations are very big on the coast of North Carolina and other other states throughout the U.S. Obviously as well, but um, one of the big issues with spotted turtles is the ephemeral wetlands that they prefer to to be in typically have been drained in a lot of cases to be better productive for the pine trees that are grown there. <clears throat> so you get this channelization of habitat where instead of these uh, like little pocket wetlands spread out across a landscape, you have just channels where the, tor the turtles are forced into these little ditches, which become great little turtle highways, but they also have the issue of predators can just move through and it, it's a lot easier for predators to take take advantage of turtle populations and systems like that. So we were seeing how their home ranges were basically affected by these ditch systems uh, with our radio tracking on that project and just getting some some baseline data on some of those forests essentially for herp diversity. So, yeah. yeah. So, uh, how big do uh, spider trolls get, and what sort of predators do they have in the wild? Uh, they're they're very small. They seem to top out at about five five inches, five and a half, somewhere in there. Uh, a couple hundred grams is about as big as they get. Um, and as far as predators, all sorts of stuff eat spotted turtles because they they never really get out of that super vulnerable stage right? or not super vulnerable once once they're probably six seven years old four inches or so their shells quite hard so it's a little more difficult but raccoons have this ability just like rip their head off and eat eat the limbs and then they kind of toss them to the side and you go try to find another live one so raccoons are major predators we saw herons uh, a lot of the wading birds will just walk up and down ditch systems and wipe out spotted turtle uh, juveniles and hatchlings especially. So that that was kind of uh, a concerning thing that I saw doing, doing that work. Uh, but yeah, very cool, beautiful little turtles, solid black, like onyx colored shells with yellow dots. Uh, it's kind of confusing why that uh, coloration might be so so good of camouflage until you're there at the time of the year where you have like pollen from trees landing on the water you get these super tannic uh wetlands and they just disappear it's it's incredible how the those uh little yellow dots on a black background provide some excellent camouflage for spotted turtles so yeah, I mean, if it didn't work, they would have been extinct by now. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so, you uh, go over uh, spot troll biology, uh, just general biology at all? Uh, sure, they're, they're considered a semi-aquatic species. So, unlike uh, a lot of box turtles that spend a lot of their time on land, except for maybe uh, Gulf Coast box turtles or Coquitlam box turtles, those are kind of the outliers in that genus, but for the most part, most part, spotted turtles spend a lot of their time in these shallow wetlands. They do make uh, forays into kind of surrounding upland habitat and will bury down in the ground at the hottest parts of the year uh, in like an, an estivation type 
uh, period. And then they are also very cold hardy. Uh, they have one of the, the largest, if not the largest uh, range of any of the North American turtles. They range up into Canada and can handle temps up there all the way down into, into Florida. So that's quite an impressive little species. Sounds like they should be more popular in like for pediculture then. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they're, they're still very sought after in the, the herp trade. As far as a, a pet turtle goes, it doesn't get a lot, lot more desirable. They don't get huge like a red-eared slider or something. Uh, kind of the biggest thing with spotted turtles is making sure that they're not being poached because that is a major concern for spotted turtle populations throughout their range. Uh, just that desirability for the pet trade makes them a, an easy target. So a lot of states have really stepped up in the last several years and uh, increased some of their state protections to prevent that. While at the same time, there's quite a few uh, spotted turtles available to anybody that's looking for captive bred spotted turtles legally uh, as long as you're not in a, a range state where they're protected it's definitely possible for people to to find them as pets without getting wild caught adults or juveniles so yeah yeah as always captain as always captain bread is preferable to wild caught so yeah absolutely yeah so would you say the main uh, threat to spot turtle populations throughout the range would be habitat loss then? Uh, I would say probably fragmentation is just as big of an issue. Habitat loss is it's definitely up there. There's some uh, some major issues with roads just splitting up these little wetlands or even wetlands from upland sites. If there's a road and it's a tiny turtle like most other herps they don't move across the roads really fast so they they take a beating uh every year for that so that that's a major issue and and then the illegal collection for the pet trade in in past years has been a a very significant threat to certain populations obviously um so the the combination of those two things yeah So you also did uh, some ephemeral wetland research in Texas as well, right? Uh, uh, spring, no, spring, no. springs. I'm sorry. What'd you say? I, I messed up. I mixed up ephemeral with uh, springs. Oh, the the springs. Yeah, I haven't actually made it over to any of the Texas sites for uh, the spring sampling, but I have done a number of the Central Florida uh, NAFTA research sites where we basically go to those sites uh, with snorkeling gear and it's a, a TSA sanctioned permitted research project that employs a, a number of volunteers that want to come out and contribute to the work where we kind of all jump in the water, look for turtles, catch the ones that we can. And then you, you generally have <clears throat> other volunteers and canoes paddling around kind of uh collecting turtles from a certain either a certain stretch of the river the spring run or in uh like a small lagoon part of the, the spring and they try to keep them 
mostly together and then they'll take them back to a central location, process them, take measurements, morphometrics, uh, do pit tagging, getting getting weights, and then they all get either uh, notched with a, a marginal notching code system or a pit tag or sometimes both, and then they get released as close as possible to, to where they were captured again. Uh, and that's that's a lot of fun. You get to see kind of a, a different view of the Florida Springs than a lot of people get to see just floating down in an inner tube or something. So that's always a lot of fun. Yeah. Always enjoy it when I can get down for that. And so what sort of uh, species do you find in the new springs? Uh, the, the most common species that are encountered are the pseudomies, so the, the big river cooter species, Florida red bellies, peninsula cooters, uh, uh, Swanee river cooters are some of my uh, favorites to see just because of how large they are. Uh, very impressive swimmers. So, Also, uh, Florida soft shells are <laughs> incredible to get to see some really large ones swimming around uh, as well as Florida snapping turtles, lots of mud and musk turtle species as well use it, use those springs. So, yeah, yeah. it's all fun games. Well, hopefully you don't run have any XL runs with any local gators, but <laughs> we see gators occasionally, but usually they they keep to themselves. So, yeah. yeah. So, have you done any uh, snake research at all, other than uh, indigos? I uh, did Eastern Diamondback work on Jekyll Island, Georgia. So uh, there, it was an, another. <laughs> I came to that project right after radio tracking indigo snakes. So my uh, perception on how how far certain snakes should or shouldn't move in a given amount of time was a little skewed after tracking indigos. But uh, yeah, had had a lot of fun radio tracking diamondbacks. Yeah, you show up there and you're like, "Oh, this is easy." Yeah, well, easy easy is relative on the on the Georgia coast for the in the maritime forest. There's a lot of saw palmettos that are always a a, a real joy to just bushwhack through those uh, looking Ooh. for for rattlesnakes. So, yeah, at least you don't have to hike five miles. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, not not quite as crazy a movement with the eastern diamondbacks, but. Yeah, they have a, a great project going on there uh, that's monitoring the, the Eastern Diamondbacks on the on the island and radio tracking some for a long-term study. Uh, a lot of a lot of really interesting ecology works coming out of that region. So, yeah, yeah. So is it true that uh, Eastern Diamondbacks will eat uh, ra adult rabbits? Uh, marsh rabbits are occasionally part of their diet yeah um i've seen juvenile eastern diamondbacks catch like nearly grown squirrels which is an impressive meal for a snake that's barely two feet long uh and just the appreciation you get for a snake that can take down that size of prey and not explode or be incapable of swallowing the thing is that's pretty pretty crazy uh yeah eastern diamondbacks were a lot of fun and it's crazy to radio track them right to the beach as well and see see them using some of the like 
where sand don't sand dunes are being scarped out by rising tides. Uh, they'll get under under root masses and stuff, and just <laughs> seeing them within feet of the ocean is that's that's pretty wild. Uh, when kind of the the typical thought a lot of people have is all right, turkey oak sand hills sort of habitat, but no, they they will be right up next to the uh, the incoming tide occasionally on these barrier islands, which is very cool to see. Is uh, Jekyll Island the one with those uh, feral horses on it? Uh, you're thinking of Cumberland Island that has the, okay. the feral horses. But yeah, uh, Jekyll is just north of that. It's the southernmost Georgia island. And uh, they're a state park that is funded entirely by visitors coming there. They have a causeway. Um, the, <laughs> the causeway is simultaneously a, a major terrapin conservation issue because the nesting female terrapins come up each spring and have uh, a hard time getting across the road if they try to cross it or or just finding good ha habitat along the causeway to, to nest so yeah that's so. unfortunate yeah another another conservation issue <laughs> <laughs> yeah but and you find all these stuff that I've always been dreamed of finding when I was a kid. So, indigos, diamondbacks. Yeah, yeah they, there's a lot of a lot of really cool species out there. Uh, I've been very very fortunate to uh, just kind of learn who the major players are for some of these species conservation, uh, and get get to know their projects and get involved with them. Through, the, through those sorts of means. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So do you do any herping in your free time at all? I, I haven't lately, because currently I'm in Wisconsin. <laughs> we moved, moved up here uh, a couple years ago. My fiance is wanted to be a little closer to her family after she finished grad school, and I was like, sure, that's fine. I've, I've got the Madagascar project that kind of gives me my herping fix twice a year so i gives you an excuse okay to get warm weather yeah yeah and to leave in the middle of winter <laughs> for a month yeah. and go hang out somewhere where it's nice and toasty so yeah i'm in ohio so i know all about how herp deprived we are this time of year yeah yeah i i do enjoy the, the springs and the summers in wisconsin i've been pleasantly surprised by uh kind of the, the turtle diversity up here with blandings and wood turtles and uh, getting out to see some of the nesting areas that those species are found in. It's been really cool as well. Yeah. So do you keep any herps of your own? Yeah, I, I keep quite a few uh, turtle species. I used to keep a lot of monitors, but uh, when I went to college, or right after college, actually, I, I moved down to Florida. So I liquidated my monitor collection that I had at that point. Uh, currently just have turtles and tortoises for the most part. So. Yeah. Uh, what sort of monitors did you have? I, I kept a lot of Argus monitors. They were kind of my favorites. Um, I also had some uh, triple cross hybrids that were sand monitors mixed with Argus monitors mixed with uh, the 
uh, I guess it's the the Gouldy and Flavorufus complex sand monitors. Okay. So uh, had those for a while. They were a lot of fun. Basically, like Argus monitors are famous for doing the tripoding standing pose to kind of look around and some of the habitat that they're from. Uh, and then the these hybrid three-way crosses were like a miniature version of that that could still do the, the tripoding partway. Not as good as the Argus monitors, but they're still a lot of fun as far as a, a captive monitor. Didn't get crazy big like some of the other common species in the, the herp trade. So I like those a lot. Yeah. Uh, so for turtle support this, do you keep at the moment? Uh, I have have uh, a number of Asian species are kind of my my bigger focus right now. Uh, a lot of the Asian turtle species have been really impacted by the what was called the Asian turtle crisis in the the late 90s, early 2000s. A lot of uh, Southeast Asian turtles were just being vacuumed up out of the, the forests in Asia and, and in other places of the world. They've been importing them over there for uh, consumption as well as the pet trade. So the ones that I keep mostly are in the the Maremis genus, and they are kind of uh, well, basically pond turtles, but they're a pretty diverse genus. There's members all the way in, in Europe from this same genus of turtles. And I, I did a lot of work with uh, sliders, so trachemies in Georgia, got a big appreciation for those aquatic species. And uh, the Maremis is kind of Southeast Asia's version of that essentially. So I keep a lot of those, they're, they're fun. Very inquisitive yeah. the turtles. <laughs> yeah. Uh... What's the name again? Is it black-breasted turtles? The ones, the really little ones with funny faces? Yeah, so those are uh, Spangler Eye. The... Yeah, yeah. I was uh, visiting my mentor's place a few weeks ago. Yeah, recently, I don't know how recently, but yeah, I acquired a few of those, and those things are <laughs> just so fun to be. First over the edge of the closure, giving you the big begging eyes when you walk by. Yeah. <laughs> Their eyes light up when they see an earthworm, huh? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, East Asia in general is someplace I never really thought of for most of my life in terms of herbs. But the more I learned about it, the more of an interesting location it is. I mean, to a certain extent, it's basically just – to a certain extent, it's like a, a slightly different version of uh, East or North America, but with more bamboo almost. Yeah, yeah, very similar. <laughs> yeah, and uh, it, Southeast Asia also has the uh, another genus – Cora, and those are their version of box turtles, essentially. So like our Terrapini North American box turtle genus, they, they have Cora, and a lot of those are some of the, the most brightly colored, impressive uh, turtles around. So those are very, very pretty, very sought after. And again, uh, for a number of those species, very little known about their ecology in the wild, uh, just not a lot of work has been done and now populations for many of those species are so low that just just finding enough to study them in the wild is a a major problem a hurdle so a lot a lot of the conservation work that's done with those species now is ex situ so in 
captive assurance colonies. So, yeah. Yeah, but you mentioned how a lot of uh, turtles all over the world are being uh, imported over to, to, into East Asia. I remember seeing this article, it was probably three or four, uh, I mean, five years ago, it might have been pre COVID, of uh, an alligator snapping turtle showing up in the Amur River in between Russia and, Ch- and China. Yeah, they there's actually quite a few farms that are <clears throat> are keeping and breeding alligator snapping turtles now in in China. So uh, that's definitely a, a species that's made its way over there, highly sought after for a number of reasons. <laughs> I'm guessing mostly meat, but uh, there, there's quite a few people that like to keep them as pets as well. Uh, but yeah, meat. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, I have heard that. Uh, North American turtles are kind of the the big thing in uh, Chinese or pediculture. Yeah, very very sought after. I, like our just common box turtles that are now not as common as they used to be uh, are, are very coveted in in Asia as well, uh, and in parts of Europe as well. So yeah, it's, it's very kind of interesting to see what people are keeping in different parts of the world and gives you a, a little different appreciation for kind of what's in our own backyards and taking note of it while it's while the common things are still common and how do we keep them common so yeah this mentor figure i talked of uh chris cedar of crocodile encounter he's mentioned this to me many times before but here in north america we always like when it comes to crocodiles we're always like oh cuban crocs or salties or niles Yada yada yada, and he's like, all my buddies overseas, what they want is American alligators. So that's the thing they cover the most. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah, it's interesting the different perspectives you get talking to to people from different parts of the world. So yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they, the funny thing was actually with another another story from from Madagascar, uh, working with the radiated tortoises there. We you see so many of them, or we were, obviously, because we're in good areas and doing a lot of work with some of the, the captive colonies. But I think on, on our first trip, I was nearing the the five-week mark of being over there, and we drove past this puddle in, in the middle of the road, and I saw a little head drop down, and I was like, stop the car. <laughs> we got to go back and see what, what turtle that is, because I haven't seen a turtle over here in uh, – the, the last month basically it's just all all radiated tortoises which anywhere else that's super coveted uh we one of our our friends that's working over there wades out into this little puddle catches it and it's an african uh mud mud turtle one of the side neck species and they're invasive in madagascar so <laughs> not not a great thing but i was honestly un un uh i guess unreasonably excited over a little African mud turtle that like every Petco in America sells for like $30. Yeah. Yeah. But you just get in this like crazy state of mind. So spoiled seeing these other awesome, beautiful radiated tortoises all over the place. And then you're like, Oh, now I can appreciate this little bland Brown water turtle for, for what it is. So it's, it's interesting. Just here, you're like, oh, lifer, lifer, lifer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So are there any uh, particular species or locations you ever want to research uh, in your life? Oh, yeah. Yet? 
yeah, I, my my list grows every time I go somewhere else. Uh, I'm really looking forward to getting getting over to Australia, uh, not just for the monitors, but turtle diversity in Australia is pretty impressive. I'm looking to do some work over there eventually, and I'd love to get to South America as well, uh, see some of the the riverine turtle species that that live down there. Uh, yeah, I, I'm not terribly picky. I, I would like to go to a lot of places and do more projects than I have time to do, honestly. So, yeah. Uh, well, is there any other things you want to talk about before we wrap up? Uh, I, I don't think so. It feels like we covered a lot, <laughs> just kind of yeah. all, all over the place. But yeah, I, I appreciate you for having me on here and chatting. Yeah, so, so in closing, go support the Turtle Survival Alliance. And uh, other than that, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you, Nate. My pleasure.